This is episode six of the Immunology Podcast, Precision Cancer Immunotherapy with Dr. Daniela Tommen. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have in-depth conversations about cytokine cells and cell surface markers with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Daniela Tommen from the Netherlands Cancer Institute, which is Brenda's stomping grounds, on the podcast to talk about her research determining how tumor immune composition and architecture influence immunotherapy responses and how distinct treatments can alter immune activity in a tumor. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Stem cell technologies would like to introduce you to human immunology news. Covering everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adaptive and innate immunity, Human Immunology News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at humanimmunologynews.com. All right. Well, we got some good uh, articles to discuss here. We'll play our usual game. Is this or is this not about COVID? Ready? Ooh, if you can't see. get this one, we're, we're going to have some issues. SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern partially escape humoral but not T-cell responses in COVID-19 convalescent donors and vaccinees by Daryl Gears et al. in, uh, let's see, or Science Immunology, published the 25th of May. Is this about COVID? That's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go yes, because that's usually the safe. Yeah, yeah. This this one obviously is about COVID. This is actually a really cool paper because it answers a question everyone's worried about which is how does our immune responses look both after innate, after just natural infection and the vaccination uh, in relation to these variants of concerns or bosses. But, you know, for people who aren't keeping up with the news, there's a lot of variants to COVID uh, partially, you know, and I'm going to say COVID, not SARS-CoV-2 because it's too many syllables, but there's lots of variations to COVID uh, partially because we didn't vaccinate, you know, we didn't protect ourselves from the virus enough. So it's raging in different populations. And when it kind of goes out of control, it has a chance to mutate. Uh, and so there's one that's B1, B.1.1.7, which is kind of known as air quotes UK variant. And there's another one that's the B.1.351 variant. And these are two variants that have spread around enough and have uh, signs of being more transmissible. And so there were concerns of do natural immunity protect against them? Do vaccines protect against them? And so this paper really went in depth. It had a study where it had healthcare workers, some of which were infected and then got two doses of vaccines, some of which weren't infected and got two doses of vaccines. And then they looked at uh, antibody levels in those donors or in those patients rather, and then also looked at their responses of those antibodies to bind to epitopes to the spike protein on wild type and variant and the ability of the spike proteins, wild types and variants to activate cellular immunity as well. And so they kind of did all the things, and it's really interesting. So a couple key level highlights from here. One is that the vaccine immunity mirrors what they see with the natural immunity. And so the first key finding from this is that if you got COVID and then got one dose of vaccine, your total level of immune response, your antibody levels, everything else, didn't go up any further with your second dose of vaccination and mirrored what it looked like in a naive person, so someone that wasn't infected with COVID who got two doses of vaccine. So it looks like the second hit, the double hit vaccination system mirrors, you know, so two shots is the same as COVID in one shot and a, and a 
third. So COVID shot, shot doesn't do any more than the first two. So that's really interesting data to begin with. And secondly, they show that the variants behave very similarly, regardless of whether you only have your just natural immunity or if you have also then been vaccinated. And what they found was that in particular, the variants and B1.351 being more extreme than B, the, the UK one, B1.1.7, help uh, these, they had your antibodies, the internalizing antibodies of spike protein worked less well on the variants, regardless of natural or vaccine immunity, but vaccination gave you a stronger response. So there was a less diminishment. And so there was still a decent amount of protection in neutralizing antibodies. But then there was also, with the neutralization capacity, decreased FC-mediated functionality. And this is about two to fourfold lower than the homologous virus. But they found that CD4 T-cell activation was equivalent across all the variants. So regardless of the variant, T-cell activation was intact, CD4. They tried to look at CD8, but there just wasn't enough signal um, in, the, in the naive individuals, the pre-vaccinated, to be able to compare and so it was like not detected versus some number. And then they couldn't run comparisons because you can't divide by zero or, you know, compare to zero unless it's actually a real zero. And they didn't have that. And so they could only really speak to CD4. But they really interest, they, they very well show that humoral immunity is diminished, but T cell responses are not. And that the vaccines basically boost, as you would expect, they boost, boost the exact natural responses. So you develop some antibodies from natural infection, but it's variable. And those natural antibodies, you know, those, those post-infection antibodies work less well on the variants. But then you get a much better response after the vaccine, and then there's still a diminishment with the variants. But the vaccine puts you in a better place. So it really shows, A, the vaccines really work. B, they seem to mimic, you know, natural infection very well and provide better immunity. And then C, provide much more and also they actually provide more spike antibodies so people with natural infections would have a nucleocapsid antibody often but only some people had a spike antibody and so it's good to see that the, you know the vaccine really drives that spike antibodies you'd expect because that's all it is and then the variants seem to be behaving similarly but the t-cell immunity which is a really important component is intact and so it looks like these vaccines are doing a great job also protecting us from the variants so uh, go team science for uh, keeping COVID at bay. And it looks like the vaccines are really working and there's still some overlapping protection from all the variants popping out. So it's very interesting to see. Yeah, I, I really like this, this study, which by the way, was also from Amsterdam, um, because I think we also discussed it a couple of episodes ago, uh, a similar data from the lab of John Wary and, and UPenn also show that if you had had COVID, one vaccine pretty much provides you all the all the protection, all the titers of antibodies that you can get, and here they're also looking at T cell responses. And I think that's super in, important because uh, we were very concerned. The variants were really a source of concern, but it looks like if you have a good, healthy T cell, responsive T cell uh, uh, population, uh, that is very uh, very positive. And I think that is this is really good information to have. So vaccines uh, are really helping, and also the, the immunity that you get is really profound. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's awesome to see. And then to to go on with this, I'm I'm really wondering when they're going to start taking this data, and maybe even saying those who are infected start with one vaccine, and we'll get your second shot later because there's you know, and large portions of the world the vaccine shortage still. 
And so yeah, does that affect yeah. does that affect treatment? Now, obviously, these things lag. You don't have a clinical trial to validate this. But at a certain point, maybe it makes sense to move on this or maybe not. But it's, there, there seems to be more and more evidence growing that if you've been infected, one dose is sufficient. Yeah, I wonder if uh, so those countries that really are struggling to get enough doses will take this seriously and and, and, and act on this information. I think it's, it's definitely something smart. Clearly, the risk of... Um, Really, the benefit of the one vaccine is really good. Well, we'll see. But this is very useful information. It really is. Nice. And also, also nice that it, uh, there's response against the other variants. Yeah, it was very timely, very interesting. All right, I think you're up to bat. Yeah, well, now it's my turn. And my my theme today is a parasite go wild or the the revenge of the unicellular uh, protozoans. Uh, I have two papers I want to talk today uh, that are, have have uh, have to do with how parasitic infections affect immunity, particularly humoral immunity and B cells. And I want to start first with one paper from uh, published in Science Advances uh, from uh, first author Presida Hola, and it seems to be a collaboration from. Uh, the lab was Susan Pierce at the NIH and uh, Asaf Maddy at Tel Aviv University. And it's, uh, and it's titled Shared Transcriptional Profiles of Atypical B-Cells Suggest Common Drivers of Expansion and Function in Malaria, HIV, and Autoimmunity. And this is a nice, very nice paper in which they're looking at uh, a particular subset of B-Cells. And I'm just going to be a quick kind of introduction of how usually B cells are characterized, which is there's three markers, CD38, CD21, and CD27, which are used to uh, identify kind of four main populations of B cells in the blood. There is uh, the antibody secreting plasma cells, which uh, express high levels of CD38 and CD27. And then by using CD21 and CD27, you have uh, naive B cells that are CD21 positive, CD27 negative, and then you have memory B cells that are have are kind of antigen experience and usually class switched and have uh, high levels of hypermutation in their genome, and they are defined by the co-expression of CD21 and CD27. And then there is uh, another uh, population of CD21, CD27 positive cells that are activated B cells that are mostly kind of predisposed to differentiate into plasma cells. And then there is a population of double negative uh, that don't express neither CD21 or CD27, but they're B cells. And they are, uh, they have different names. The population has received different names. Some people call them like double negative cells, H related B cells, memory, atypical memory B cells. Here they use the atypical B cell um, nomenclature. I'm going to stick to that. And this population uh, was originally observed in, it's not very common, it's not very frequent in kind of healthy individuals, particularly in, 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 in industrialized countries, uh, but they're observed at rather high frequencies in certain conditions where there is a chronic antigen stimulation. And this includes uh, chronic diseases such as, well, malaria, HIV, hepatitis C, and also some autoimmune diseases such as uh, rheumatoid uh, arthritis. And it is not clear what these cells are, are what is the function or what is the, the, the consequence of having these cells, because 
they are often not class switched. They're often, they don't really produce and or secrete antibodies. They don't seem to be memory cells in the, in the, in the standard sense of the way. They don't, um, they cannot differentiate into plasma cells. They seem to be, uh, they have been characterized as allergic or unresponsive to, to, to antigen. And, uh, some of them are expressing IgG, IgGD, which suggests they're not mature. They have not been activated. They have not been class switched, but some of them do have hypermutations in their, in their, in their, in the chains of their, of their antibody chains. So it's not completely clear what these cells are doing and why it is that for in particular patients with malaria have this, have this population expanded in their blood. So they, this, in this paper, uh, the, the authors took look closely at blood from patients with malaria, uh, from, um, uh, I think it's from, from, from Mali. I forgot. Yeah. From, uh, from, from Africa, from Mali mostly and other African countries. And they, uh, really characterize this atypical B cell subset using single cell single cell uh, RNA sequencing. And it was very nice because they really look, they could uh, distinguish some characteristics of the population, uh, including to uh, confirm the, the, ex- the expression of, of, of the markers that are usually used for identifying the cells. But also I uh, found previously ident- unidentified markers that are really cor- correlated with this population, uh, including, for example, um, well, uh, Including markers as, such as uh, CD1, CD11C or IPGAC, CD72, and also CD79, CD uh, Integrin Beta, CD55, are all markers that were not previously associated with this with this population. What they also look is that, particularly during, during uh, for example, febrile malaria, when the malaria is, is flaring and the patient is uh, having fever and having the, the symptoms of malaria. They observe that this, this, this cells express IL-10, which makes them think that maybe they're, they have some kind of anti-inflammatory, they are in anti-inflammatory response to chronic antigen simulation. They also found that within this population, there's heterogeneity, that is mostly driven by the expression on their surface of IG, IgD, which is associated with non-class switch or naive, like as B cells, and also populations that also express IgG. Um, so it's, it's a very nice paper in which they look at the heterogeneity within this population. And what I think is very important is that they also compare patients from malaria, uh, with malaria, with uh, atypical B cells from patients with HIV. And they found there's a lot of similarities in the transcriptional programs, which make this, make think that this population really is Independent of the of the disease itself, but a consequence of chronic simulation, um, and that might be a response that it's their differentiation seems to be driven by interferon gamma, and they might be they have, might have some kind of anti-inflammatory value uh, to to their the expansion of this population. So I think it was a very nice, very lot of a uh, lot of bioinformatic analysis, which I think is a speciality of the lab of Asafmati. Um, it was very nice to see. How people look into B cells, uh, so I think it's a really nice uh, source for anybody interested in in, in B cell uh, ident- identity in general. That's that's interesting. Do you, do you 
you think they've gotten to the root of what these do at all? I mean, it's interesting that they're doing, it looks like it's a conserved program, right? So in all, all the scenarios they looked at, they're very similar, but do they get any understanding of what they're mucking around with? So this, it looks like this, the, the, they seem some characteristics of the visa receptors that this, that this, uh, uh, cells have. They see that they have a rather limited repertoire of, of, of chains, of heavy chains, which suggests that there's some kind of, there's some relation between the signaling and the specificity of these B cells and their propensity to develop into these atypical B cells. They also think, so judging by the, the biophysical properties of the, of the, of the, of the amino acids that there are in the binding side of, of their B cell receptors, they they think that there's these B cells are more likely to be recognizing self antigens at a low affinity, and thus they think that this they might actually be responding to inflammation and to interferon gamma by producing IL-10 and by dampening the immune response, and they get to they get to to live and they get to expand because these patients have this chronic exposure, this chronic cyclic exposure, especially in malaria, because children that have malaria usually are the ones that have a divorce and they take a really long time to develop a humoral immunity that prevents malaria from flaring up so 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 frequently. And that's why malaria is so deadly in children. But adults usually have enough tire of antibodies to to kind of reduce the, the severity of, of, of when the when the parasite goes into the blood and generates the, the, the fever and the, and the pain and all the, the the symptoms of malaria. So it looks like during this kind of the cyclic antigen exposure, this population gets to kind of, it, it, it's stimulated in a way that that makes their population really pop up in ways that they don't, in, in patients that are, that, are, that are healthy. So it's a B cell that's a T-reg, basically. Well, I, I, they don't, they never mention that. They never talk about T-rex, uh, like T-brex. T uh, B Rex, but uh, they, yeah, I guess they are. That's one of the one of the one of the suggestions they make in the paper. Gotcha. All right. Well, before you deep dive on another parasite paper, we'll we'll hop over from the adaptive immune system and go right into the innate. Uh, this one is embryonic macrophages function during early life to determine invariant natural killer T cell levels at barrier services. This uh, first author is Thomas Genselin. Uh, it's in Nature Immunology, published May 26th. It's from Rich Blumberg's lab out of Harvard, who I know. And he is a, a great guy who's done a lot of very interesting work across both IBD and immunology in general. A lot of work on FC receptors as well. And so they found something very interesting. So as you may know, macrophages are required to cause natural killer cells to infiltrate in their various tissues, right? That's like one of the things they do. But what they found is that embryonic derived, not bone marrow derived, but the ones that you get as an embryo uh, that live, you know, that live in your blood for another eight to 10 days, at least in mice, those are the ones that are responsible for setting the levels of natural killer cells or invariant natural killer cells specifically in your peripheral tissue, specifically in uh, mucosal tissues. And most importantly, of course, the gut. Um, the most important organs we all know. So this is really interesting. So they do a bunch of studies and we can get into the weeds here, but we won't. 
Of course, they do parabiosis studies, which are my favorite, the Franken-mouse, where you sew two mice together. Something I've always wanted to do. I have no, I've never done it. I've done mouse surgery, and it still blows my mind that you can do this to mice by ligating their tiny blood vessels together. So it, it's just amazing this happens. But between parabiosis experiments, uh, knockouts of various immune cells, you know, inducible or uh, inducible deletion through diphtheria toxins under various expressions of different genes and uh, tissue specific knockouts. So they, they do it all. Um, so whoever's in charge of the mouse program, uh, Gold Star, uh, with all these different mice, they were able to show that it's these embryonically derived ones. So the ones that you get early on in, you know, after you're out of the womb, the ones that you had coming out. Those are the ones that set your levels of NK cells, your invariant NK cells in your colon. If you knock them out, levels go down. If you knock out the other macrophages, levels don't go down. And then this has downstream consequences. So if you do a colitis model and there's less NK cells, you have less severe colitis. But if you give them listeria or a mouse, a modified mouse version of listeria that can infect mouse cells, you get worse infection because you have less NK cells. And this pers this effect persists for the whole life. So the embryonic cells, the ones you get before they're bone marrow derived, as you know, once your bone marrow kicks in, it makes your immune cells. The ones you have coming out of the womb for your entire life set the pattern of invariant natural killer cells that take up residence in your colonic tissue. Full stop. There we go. It's just more complicated every day. Man, talking about deterministic immunology... What is the model that they use to remove the embryonic macrophages to, to study, or, or how do they uh, look at the this phenomena? So they do it a bunch of ways. One, they can do an antibody depletion. So right when the mice come out in the first couple of days, they deplete all the antibodies or all the macrophages with antibodies. They can do a pan uh, antibody or uh, diphtheria toxin that's under macrophage control. So they start with monocytes and deep dive into macrophages. And since there's no embryonic there's no bone marrow ones left. If they give the diphtheria toxin, they kill all the macrophages that came from the embryonic stage. So it's all kinetically oh. driven. And then they can also flow for like F, what's F4, F4, F4 slash 80 is a measure of embryonic and CD11 low. And so they can't do a deletion based on that, but they can then measure those levels and see that they depleted properly. But if they repeat the experiment when the mice are like, say, 80 days old and do the same thing, they don't get the same effect. It only works based on a time frame up to about 10 days. Wow. And what do we know about human fetal macrophage development? In the case of the human, they also come from the embryonic liver? like in. I like think in so, yeah. This is a little out of my realm, but I believe, yeah, they come. They, I think they're still liver-derived. I don't know if there's extra um, tissue in the kidney area or something that also serves as a bone marrow reserve. I think we have extra spots as well, but it's not, it's not, 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 not bone marrow reserve, but, you know, pluripotent reserve of immune cells. But it's still not bone marrow derived to begin with, correct? They don't kick in until after you, you come out. And they said everything. Obviously, they, it's hard to do this experiment in people because you <laughs> yeah. do it in babies. Fair. And that is not a good thing. But Unethical to start with, but yes. <laughs> but it's very fascinating to see that it's so deterministic and it's something this strong is probably preserved. So for the last, let's go back to parasites, please. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about another, another paper looking into B cells, parasites, protective immunity, 
And in this case, we're moving into uh, the trypanosoma family or genus. And so trypanosoma uh, is, particularly in Africa, is the, well, variant trypanosoma species found in Africa, such as trypanosoma vivax and trypanosoma congolese, for example, are responsible for diseases both in in, in, in livestock and cattle and humans. In humans, the the African trypanosomiasis is known as a sleeping sickness. And the, in case of, of livestock, uh, also uh, affects them very severely. And the disease is called Nagana and makes cattle, well, it has a very strong, very hard effect on, on economies and, of course, on people. And nowadays, when, when cattle gets, um, it gets infected with this disease, usually it's managed with drugs, which keep the cattle alive. But uh, there is very kind of dire need of, of, of a vaccine or a, a prevent, preventive um, uh, intervention for, for, this, for this disease, both for cattle and also no, hopefully for humans. So I want to talk today about a paper um, published in Nature, uh, first author of Delphine Ottoman from the lab of Gavin Wright at the Wellcome Sanger Institute in the UK. And it's called an invariant trypanosoma vivax vaccine antigen induces protective immunity. And I think this is really, really huge. I, I really like this paper because uh, vaccines against uh, uh, protozoa and parasites, is, they're, they're infamously difficult to, to make. We don't have vaccines against, I think, any of these uh, parasitic diseases, uh, malaria, uh, you know, parasites like uh, Giardia, uh, trypanosoma. So I come from South America. We have trypanosoma crozii, also terrible disease endemic to the region. And there seems nothing that we can do. And one of the reasons that um, this, these parasites are so hard to, to target and the, our immune systems also have such a hard time uh, responding against, besides what we spoke about uh, in the previous in the, in the previous paper, is the fact that often they are covered by glycoproteins uh, that not only have a lot of sugars that make it hard for the immune system to actually see the protein uh, antigens uh, that can be used uh, that can are better targets for immunity, but also they are serially expressed and they're replaced on the surface of the of the parasite. So Usually, if you by the time there's an immune response mounted against one of these variable surface glycoproteins, it is too late because the, the parasite just changes to a different one. And antibodies that are bound to these glycoproteins are usually shed very easily. And so these this, this guys are really masters of this guise and of, of, of eluding the immune response. So what the authors did in this in this paper is try to have a very rational approach to finding antigens on these parasites that could potentially be immunogenic. So they took the whole uh, genome of, trip- of trypanosoma vivax and they looked at all of the possible candidate proteins uh, expressing the genome and they chose candidate proteins that did not belong to a parallel paralogous uh, gene family, so that are similar to host proteins, so like the pro- uh, proteins of the of the mice in this case. They, uh, they also choose cells that 
have uh, antigens that will have more than 300 amino acids in the extracellular region. So there's enough protein outside to be accessible at the cell surface. And that these antigens will be expressed in the blood stages of the plasmodium, of the trypanosoma. Uh, and they have a really nice model, uh, bioluminescent model, mouse model for infection in which they have a, a T vivax that is engineered to express luciferase. So the genetic I see the mice in a, a CT plus luciferase uh, measure. So that's very nice. And that has how they follow the infection in this mice. And so they just generated uh, vaccines uh, with, with adjuvants using all of these different 60 different candidates. And they looked at how they well they could prevent uh, the infection and the, the bioluminescence signal in this mice. And it was, it was really, really nice, the fact that they found one particular protein that really mediated a very protective response in this mice. Uh, this protein, uh, it's a, they, they called it the invariant flagellum antigen from T. vivax, uh, and they used IFX, I want to uh, refer it as IFX, which was a previously un uncharacterized type 1 cell surface protein, a glycoprotein, that has about 18 amino acids, uh, a, a cytoplasmatic region of about, about uh, 18 amino acids, but it also has a, a large extracellular, extracellular domain. And it's enriched and it's kind of located around the, the site where the flagellum is attached to the body of the parasite. And they, they could find that this protein really could mediate immunity really well, also against different kind of strains of T. vivax. And, um, and what is really interesting, and I think that is the, the, the main uh, takeaway message from this paper is that there, there is the, the cattle that is uh, infected with with this um, with this parasite does not have immunity against this antigen. So it looks like even though the antigen is there, the the situation is so difficult for the immune system that they actually are unable and capable of making an immune response. So this 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 makes me, me becomes a really nice vaccine candidate because it seems to be really good once you mount the response, but you are unable the the, the animals are seem to be unable to mount the immune response by themselves against parasites. And so it's this really nice way of finding and rationally looking at different vaccine candidates. The only downside is that in the discussion they mentioned that. So far, they have tried it. Apparently, they tried it on goats, and they could not actually protect goats uh, with this using this antigen. So that is actually very unfortunate. So it is unclear how whether this this particular candidate will proceed as a uh, further development. But I do think that the the the, the way they found it was was very very uh, very elegant and very valuable. So, so that was my question. Did they really make 60 different vaccines, put them on a bunch of mice, so like say five to 10 per group and, you know, yeah. so 600 mice and then screen them all? Isn't that some real commitment to science? That is. Yeah. That's, almost, that's almost a goat worth of mice. Yeah. <laughs> so they have three, uh, at least three, three mice per, per, per vaccine candidate. So I don't know anything about goat immunology. 
other than they provide antibodies sometimes. Do they have a, mm-hmm. do you know anything? Like, do they have a different enough immune system that you would, did they talk about this in the discussion? Like, they don't elaborate. And I also, I am not a, I'm not very uh, versed in gut immunology. So any veterinarian uh, immunologist out there, please feel free to tweet uh, at Immunopodcast and tell us uh, why goats might not respond. If you're a goat immunologist or a veterinary immunologist with a background in goats, we want to hear from you. Please. Please. So, so yeah, that, that was it for today. I mean, hopefully, may, maybe we can use this to find a vaccine against malaria. It seems so hard, and they keep failing at it, unfortunately. All right. Well, there's the roundup for the day. Very excited about our the next part of our episode today and our interview. Indeed. All right, off we go. Do you do immunotherapy research? Stem Cell Technologies offers products and protocols for immunotherapy research, including T-cell isolation, activation, and expansion reagents. Use easy SEP T-cell isolation kits to isolate highly purified T-cells in as little as eight minutes. Follow up with immunocult reagents designed for human T-cell activation and expansion. Learn more about stem cells, optimized protocols, and reagents for immunotherapy research at www.stemcell.com slash T hyphen cell hyphen therapy. So today we're talking to Daniela Thoman. Uh, she's a group leader at the Netherlands Cancer Institute, where I work. And she uh, has really great research looking at T cells and the immune response in tumors against particularly checkpoint inhibition, the function of exhaustion on T-cells, a lot of other topics such as uh, tertiary lymphoid structures and tumors, and what is the importance of the tumor architecture in in looking at uh, immune responses uh, in in tumors. So Daniela uh, has a PhD and an MD from the University of Basel, where she started her career, and she's been at the Netherlands Cancer Institute for, for many years, and last year she became group leader. Uh, so thank you, Daniela, so much for, for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for being here. So, Daniela, so I am a little bit of, uh, familiar with your research, and I, I'm a big fan. And I was hoping that today you can, you can talk to us a little bit about you know, understanding the role of T-cells, uh, the role of, of checkpoint inhibition in, in T-cells in tumors. What uh, do we know about what certain therapies, particularly checkpoint inhibition and uh, um, PD, anti-PD-1 antibodies, CDLA-4 antibodies, what are these therapies that are very, very, uh, have very amazing results in certain patients? What are they doing? What is our understanding of the role of, of the cells expressing this, uh, this uh, molecules in the tumor? Maybe we can we can start talking a little bit about one of your papers in which you look at particular populations. Uh, you identified a uh, what you, you you call a PD one tumor uh, uh, populations uh, in the in the in, in, in within CD eight cells in in tumors. Would you like to talk to us about that and how does this translate to the clinic? Yes, so I think we know now for for quite some years that that t-cells are important in in tumor control right and that um if if t-cells are present uh, in a tumor um this is associated with better prognosis and uh, better response to immunotherapy and i think um many um uh 
people have shown that that uh, T cells can recognize um, uh, tumor cells and 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 can kill tumor cells. So I think that's a very um, interesting subset, of course, to look into to therapeutically target. And um, the the work then in the in the uh, last years about uh, T cell exhaustion and, and T cell dysfunction has really shown us that. Uh, the tumors develop strategies to to um, limit the functionality of these T cells, so kind of to uh, to impair their functionality and and uh, protect themselves from from uh, this uh, T cell control. And um, then uh, immunotherapies uh, uh, like a blockade of of uh, these so-called immune checkpoints like CTLA4 or or PD1 um, have uh, really uh, uh, offered a new treatment uh, option for for cancer patients in in reinvigorating these cells and um, and restoring anti tumor immunity and and as you said I mean we see that it works uh, pretty well in some patients but in other patients unfortunately um, uh, these these treatments have no effect and uh, we are not trying to understand why is this the case so how can we identify patients that respond or that do not respond to these treatments. Um, and we still do not fully understand how this this treatment works. And um, we are uh, looking at uh, specifically at PD-1 blockade. Um, and I think it has been shown by uh, uh, particularly the work of, of John Vary and his lab that um, that uh, PD-1 is a very important um, receptor uh, and, and identifies these uh, these cells um, that are marked as or that we call exhausted or dysfunctional and that are uh, just limited in their capability to to um, exert like full-blown T-cell effector functions. And actually, we got interested in this uh, in these cells by um, data from, from the very group that showed that cells that either express PD-1 at a high level or at the intermediate level seem to differ in the grade of, of exhaustion and also um, in, in their response to PD-1 blockade. So in, in these uh, chronic viral infection mouse models, um, they could show that cells with a high PD-1 expression were quite limited in their capacity for, for reinvigoration and, and um, yeah, did not well survive in these mice, whereas cells with intermediate PD-1 level um, could respond to, to PD-1 blockade. So we thought, okay, um, let's look in the tumor whether we can see that as well, and perhaps that could be actually a marker for patients to identify patients um, who can respond or not. And so we started to to look at this in lung cancer, um, and we wanted to have like a good way to to define uh, these cells because yeah, just gating on on uh, PD one by flow cytometry is of course everyone is doing that a bit different in a different way. Um, so we thought, okay, let's let's use peripheral blood uh, T cells as a as a benchmark um, or as, as a reference because they rarely express PD one at very high levels, um, and uh, then we could really specifically set this this uh, PD one high expression and we call them then PD one T for this tumor specific expression because we yeah kind of see that mostly in the tumor and not in peripheral blood. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah. Then we started to to look into these cells. So I wanted to roll back a second uh, to, to the larger question you'd mentioned, because I always, I always put my clinical hat on as well. And you had mentioned that, you know, part of the problem is some people respond and some patients respond and some don't, which is, you know, unfortunate because it's a great therapy, but only it works in some people. And it sounds like you're isolating some of the cells that indicate this could be the case or not. 
But at a higher level, have you guys, have you, or generally speaking, could you speak to what we think is driving some of the mechanisms behind that, you know, a lot of, a lot of scenarios, PD-1 could be there, there could be up expression, but blockade doesn't get you anywhere or doesn't get where you want to be. Is there a sense in the field why that's happening? Why is it that this blockade is insufficient? Is it other mutations? Is it we don't know yet? Where where are we kind of in that whole uh, kind of next step now that we've got our foot in the door with the PD-1 system? Yeah, so I think that's a very important question. And I think in the beginning, people have hoped that they could use, for instance, PDL1, which is, is the ligand of, uh, for PD1 uh, that is expressed on the cancer cells or immune cells um, in, in the tumor, that they could just use it as a biomarker, like for targeted therapies, right? Where you just look at, uh, at the expression of your target and then you can say um, it's there or not and patients respond or not. And I think people learned uh, very quickly that this is not working for, for this type of of therapy. And I think we're still trying to understand why some patients that have uh, PD-1 positive T cells can respond and others not. And so what we found is um, that I think the, the level of PD-1 expression really identifies different subsets. So a cell that expresses PD-1 at intermediate level is, is um, not the same as a cell that expresses PD-1 at, at high level. Um, and that I think what we also learned is that this dysfunctional state is not really a binary state, but more a gradient of cell states. And uh, I think uh, there are a, a couple of mouse um, uh, data uh, that, that emerged recently that clearly show that if you have cells that are more at the beginning of this dysfunctional spectrum, that they um, can be durably reinvigorated by PD-1 blockade and are um, crucial for the response, but we still do not really understand what these uh, cells that are more um, in the in the latest functional spectrum, for instance, do, whether they still have a role or not, and what um, other cells that express PD-1 do in the tumor. I think there are also, of course, a lot of other uh, suppressive mechanisms that could just induce PD-1 blockade um, Without really being cells that that are tumor reactive, I mean there are data showing that, for instance, also virus specific cells can express PD1 in the tumor, and and we don't know whether they can do something or whether they're just bystander cells. Right, but in general, the cells that are expressing PD1 and then other activation markers in very CD39 has also become very very interesting. They are indeed enriched in, in T cells that are specific against, for example, new antigens uh, of the tumor. That's part of your data shows that, and other people's data have also. So they are these cells are indeed seeing the tumor, and they are responding to, to, to that to that stimulation, and that's related to their phenotype. And I I would also like to to ask you what is your opinion regarding what are where are the cells responding? Are those cells in the tumor, so this quote-unquote dysfunctional cells, we also know that cells could be found in, in lymph nodes, they could be living in, in other places, and they could be recruited to tumors, and I think people also kind of think there might be a mechanism in there. Uh, what, is, what, is in, what is your understanding, or when you are treating people with checkpoint inhibition, where are the cells coming from? Are those cells lost in the tumor? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's still uh, one of the of the big questions, right? That we are trying to answer. I think in the beginning, um, there was a bit the the dogma that CTLA four blockade acted mostly in the in the periphery, in the lymph nodes, and uh, PD one blockade um, acted at the tumor side. But I think uh, now um, more and more data are emerging that um, recruitment from the periphery might be important. I mean, there were, were um, studies showing that uh, in patients who were treated with PD-1 blockade and then um, serial biopsies were taken before and, and after the treatment, that there is a, is a um, quite large influx of new T-cell clones in, in patients uh, who respond. Um, so there there might be an important role for, for peripheral T-cells. Um, there have been mouse models showing an effect of, of uh, PD-1 at the lymph node. But of course, it is quite challenging to really study the effect of PD-1 blockade at the tumor side. And I think that's a bit the part that we're still missing, trying to understand what's happening there. And I think um, there, for instance, uh, patient-derived tumor models that, uh, so ex vivo models that allow us to uh, treat uh, this uh, these tumors outside of the patient and really study what is happening there. They, they will help us to better understand whether there is also actually an effect uh, at the tumor side. Another reason for another reason for looking into uh, models from from the patient ex vivo and that keep the tumor architecture is trying to also see the effect on other cell types. And I think that particularly in your research, you are also interested in. Uh, B cells and of follicular helper cells, which are also high expressors of PD-1. They're also characterized by PD-1 expression. And I know that you've been looking into uh, tertiary lymphoid structures. And maybe would you like to tell us a little bit of what uh, your experience with, with, with this part of the immune response has been? Yes, I mean, I have to say that our uh, studies that we just very recently started, so we still have to see where, where they go. but. Um, I think one very interesting observation that we actually made in the in the uh, PD1T paper um, that you that you mentioned in the beginning is that um, these highly dysfunctional cells start producing uh, a chemokine uh, CCL13, which is normally not produced by CD8 T cells, and um, so we were wondering why are these cells doing that, or what could be the the role of this of this chemokine and. Um, 6CL13 is, is uh, a crucial chemokine for the formation of lymphoid tissue, either in, um, in lymph nodes or uh, in, in tertiary lymphoid structures, which uh, are lymph follicles at, uh, at the tumor side, or it also form in the context of other chronic inflammatory diseases. And um, we then started to, to look where in the tumor these dysfunctional cells actually localize, and we found them predominantly in, in these tertiary lymphoid structures. So we think that there is some kind of connection between these dysfunctional tumor reactive cells and, and the formation of, of tertiary lymphoid structures in the tumor. And of course, there have been um, a number of recent study, uh, studies in, a, in, in different tumor types like melanoma or sarcoma or renal cell cancer that have shown that uh, tertiary lymphoid structures can be predictive for um, response to immune checkpoint blockade and it can also be probably induced by immune checkpoint blockade and um, currently do not really uh, understand what the role uh, of these of this tertiary input structure is. So whether actually it's important that these, uh, these dysfunctional cells are in a certain 
context, um, uh, tissue context with, with other cells or in the specialized immune niches, or whether this is just a, um, a, a parallel effect that, that the tumor active T cells are present in the tumor. So you get the formation of TLS, but they don't really contribute actively to the immune response. So at the moment, we don't understand this. And this is something we're very interested in um, to see what, what immunotherapy really does um, uh, to these to this, uh, structures and, and how this is related to T cell dysfunction. So... I know we've been sitting on uh, PD-1 a lot, but I was also wondering in this context, do you think there's other checkpoints? I mean, we, we've talked about at least one other, but do you think there are other checkpoints that we're missing or that in your studies are going, man, this keeps coming up. And I wonder I wonder if there's something to that. I know obviously don't, don't disclose anything that's a grant that's about to be funded, but if there's something you, you think out there that's worth discussing in terms of other checkpoints or processes that you think... Uh, maybe going on here because we know sometimes we inhibit one thing but there's a redundant pathway and so maybe that's what some of what's going on here too i didn't know if you had seen any come up on your radar that really started making you think about this yeah i mean we and others uh, have seen that that dysfunctional cells co-express uh, many different uh, immune checkpoints mm -hmm. right and i think um, ctle4 and pd1 were, were the first that have been studied but since then um, there have many more been um, discovered like TIM3, LAC3, TIGIT. And um, now I think the field is exploring kind of what is what is really the role of these receptors also uh, in, in addition to, to PD-1. I mean, uh, I think it has become quite clear that none of these other receptors is probably as central as PD-1 or has, um, let's say, the same major effect when we block it on, on the T cells. Um, but there, of course, still could be some some additive value if you if you block, uh, let's say, PD one together with with one of the other receptors. And I think that's what we're currently trying to understand in the field. And um, yeah, which T cell subsets would really benefit from from uh, combination blockade of, of two or more uh, of these inhibitory receptors? Um, can we also find new ones that have not been characterized that could be targeted? And, um, yeah, what is the best strategy and how can we identify again the patients that would benefit from PD-1 blockade alone or then perhaps, uh, from a combination treatment? Yeah. So I guess the reason I was also thinking about it is wondering if there's anything internal to the cell as well. You had mentioned CREL as something that was popping up and that popped into my brain because the lab I used to be a part of was seeing its role as a, as almost a, a pseudo checkpoint switch, but kind of, you know, of its regular transcriptional role. A regulatory role and how it would, you know, influence the result of the checkpoint process. So I don't know if you'd seen anything else, like, you know, the CREL comes to mind. If you'd seen anything else, it's really like, you know, I'm wondering if you need a, a zinc finger plus a PD-1 inhibitor or what have you that's starting to pop on your radar. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, of course, after the success of, of uh, CTLA-4 and PD-1, uh, people started to look at, at similar molecules in the, in with the hope that yeah we we can find uh, something similar that that will uh, yeah lead to to a similar number of patients that benefit but i think we indeed need to be just much uh, broader in our thinking and and i think also people become more creative uh, let's say in, in combining um uh, different approaches to to reactivate the cells and to to just uh, have a broader view of potential um uh, targets and and, and tests uh, 
yeah, strategies that that uh, that are perhaps not that obvious, um, or let's say not exactly the same as as has been done to reactivate these cells. Yeah, on that that note, uh, what do you think is the is the is the the future of immunotherapy? How how creative can we get also by combining only also monoclonal antibodies, but maybe uh, cytokine treatments or antibodies that are aiming at a tumor or uh, you know, some some people are looking into combining with uh, more traditional, more conventional therapies such as radiotherapy. Or what where do you think? What is the thing that most excites you about the latest understanding you know, of how to activate the immune system and the new tools and new pharma uh, pharma products that are available uh, for patients? Yeah, so I think the the probably two biggest challenges that we have is on the one hand that we really need to still better understand how um, PD one blockade actually works immunologically and and what makes it so successful. So especially when we think of this um, this functional gradient, I mean, yeah, which cells are really the relevant ones to reactivate and and which cells are are the best and and is it sufficient if we if we reactivate the the early dysfunctional or um, do we do we need also uh, to reactivate other cells along this gradient? And I think the second challenge is then indeed what to do with the patients that do not benefit from, from PD-1 blockade. And I think um, at one point we will need to move towards a, a really personalized immunotherapy treatment because there can be so many different reasons why the immune response is failing in, in, in a patient, right? And I think... Uh, Strategies that we can detect or, or that we, that we develop biomarkers that are not a single biomarker, but really a set of markers that allow us to estimate, um, the, the, yeah, the presence of a, of a anti-tumor immune response in the patient and potential problems with this response. And then to really design the right uh, treatment for the patient. Um, I, I think that's the way where, where probably in the end we, we want to go and, I think we will need a couple of um, of different types of combination. I mean, uh, I think some for, for some tumors, the problem starts that there are just no immune cells in there, right? That could be reactivated. So there, we need to think about strategies to get uh, to get cells um, first to the to the tumor side, and then um, in other tumors, uh, you have T cells, but there are either uh, mutations in in uh, in the um, let's say, antigen presentation pathway or in the gamma signaling pathway that makes uh, these tumors uh, either undetectable for the T cells or not responsive to, to, their, to the immune response. And uh, there again, we need to come up with other strategies to, to overcome this. And then also just the, the blockade of some additional uh, inhibitor receptors will not solve um, this problem. So I think we, we should invest in, in strategies that allow us to really understand and, and detect um, the, the problems of the immune response in the patients and then to find uh, specific treatments for that. Excellent. It looks like we have a, a bright road ahead on this if we can, if we just get enough people working on it. So, so speaking exactly. of getting people to work on it and kind of segueing into other parts, one of the things uh, we talk about is uh, you know trying to understand people's careers, how they got where they are. And so I wanted to ask you, since you guys, you and Brenda both work at the same location, uh, when you see Brenda in the hall and are giving her advice on her career, 
what do you tell her uh, about getting ready to make that plunge to faculty or what have you? Um, you know, you've done it recently as group leader. I know there's different titles in different countries, but you've kind of made that transition, gotten some grants. Uh, what do you, do you advise people to go into academia or not? Or what do you, what, you know, what's, what's the high level thing? We have a lot of, you know, grad students and postdocs who listen to the podcast. And so we try to get people kind of throughout their career and you're at a very valuable stage because uh, you just did it to, to kind of look back and guide the way forward. Yeah. I mean, I guess with the question to go to academia or not, I mean, I think there are so many exciting options out there. Um, in the end, I think everyone should, should really think about what, um, what they find exciting and, and uh, yeah, what they want to, to uh, continue working on. Right. I mean, I think there are a lot of different, um, uh, ways to, to stay in science and, um, academia is one, uh, industry is another, but there are also a lot of other options, um, like, uh, from science communication to, to, uh, whatever. And I think it's, it's important to think about what do you like about science? Um, what, uh, what, yeah, uh, is something that you, that you think you're, uh, you want to spend your time with, right? I mean, I think that's the first, uh, first important consideration. And then also to look into these options. Um, it's possible to talk to people to, to hear about, um, what, what does it mean to, to stay in academia? What does it mean to go to industry? Um, yeah, to, to really, that, that they really know what's, what they are talking about. And I mean, I have to say for my career path, it was, um, not really, conventional one so also not really direct i mean i uh, actually never uh, thought about becoming a, a pi in science i have to say so uh, i i uh, wanted always to become a pediatric surgeon um and uh, after after uh, school i started to to study medicine um and then i actually realized after uh, a few years that especially when we had a, a semester which was very heavily focused on anatomy that I found it quite boring <laughs> to learn all these uh, muscles and bones and I was really yeah considering whether that was the right choice and then I kind of got the opportunity to um, join a, a summer school for uh, yeah to do a, a small research project and I, I really liked that and um and then for the rest of my studies, I did in parallel um, an experimental medical thesis. Uh, so uh, I spent, I think, more time in the lab than really uh, in, <laughs> in lectures. Um, then after uh, after finishing my studies, I uh, actually first uh, did one year of uh, internal medicine training uh, before I decided to do a PhD, um, which was then uh, more in basic T cell immunolo immunology. And after that, I actually went back to the, to the clinic, uh, to finish my, my clinical specialization first, uh, full time. And then, um, the last uh, three years, uh, 50, 50 as a, as a postdoc in oncology and, and, uh, uh, as a, as a, a fellow, clinical fellow, uh, to, to finish my specialization. And then, yeah, I decided to go abroad for a postdoc, uh, and ended up at NKI five years ago. Um, in, in Don Schumacher's lab. And at one point I realized that for myself, I need to decide whether I want to stay in clinic or whether I want to stay in, in science, because I, for me, it was just not possible to really do both at, at a very high level. And, um, I was always annoyed when I was uh, in the clinic that I could not continue 
on my research. And when I was in the lab, I felt bad for my patients. And then at one point I thought, okay, in, in, in my clinic time, I can help a few patients, but perhaps with my research, I could help at one point so many more. Um, and so I decided uh, to, to focus on, on research. And um, I still kind of decided for me that I would like to stay um, in a field very close to the patient. So actually we are using um, or uh, working exclusively with, with patient materials. So I'm not working with, with mouse models or, or, or other models. And um, we are quite involved in, in clinical trials. Of course, we're using uh, or now developing a patient-derived tumor models where we still can uh, yeah, kind of treat uh, tumors instead of patients. Um, so it's uh, still a bit attached to the clinic, but uh, yeah, I, I then decided to really focus on research and yeah, so kind of one thing came to the other, but it was not really that I had a very clear plan to end up where I'm now, I have to say. Oh, no, that's interesting. I, I also made a similar choice and kind of left clinic uh, after two years of residency because American training is a little, as you know, a little different in how it goes. And so I practice a little bit just like a moonlight here or there, but it's very much shift work. So, cause I also felt that obligation, um, of, you know, and you're one or the other and it was pulling you apart. So it's interesting hearing that, uh, wherever you go, it seems to be that the, these, uh, the stories are very similar in the patterns of, you know, especially for MD PhDs and kind of that conflicted state are, are present. Uh, so in the academic path then, and what you've done, what do you advise senior, you know, for senior postdocs, trying to make the jump what are what to academia like you like yep i'm gonna do it i want to be faculty what are the things you think people forget about doing that are really important so everyone knows you got to publish papers great okay we, we've established that but what are the other things people are you in your experience that you forgot about that, or that people forget about that are really key to your success yeah i mean i think there are a couple of aspects that that can help you right and i think papers is of course something uh yeah that that uh, is important um or that people want to to see that you can uh, uh produce uh, science right i think what is also good to consider to to start early with trying to get grants i mean i think when you when you at one point start a lab you have to do grant writing and if it's then the first time that you start with that it's very challenging and i have to say i had the opportunity during during my phd my postdoc um to always apply for fellowships and, and just write a lot of, of grants so uh, when i started um as a as a pi it was for me quite yeah normal to to write grants so i had already quite some experience also with the procedures how that goes with uh, going to interviews and um all these things so i think that on, of course on, on your cv it will also look good if you if you got some fellowships or some travel grants so i think that that can help a lot um i think if you want to start your own lab it's it's important to think about the niche that you uh, could find for yourself um and there, I think it also helps to, to reflect a bit out about your research, what, what you really like, what, uh, what you're interested in, um, and perhaps also what, what you're good at. I mean, I realized after my PhD where I did like, um, T cell, uh, co-cultures that, uh, that took weeks to, to grow. And then in the end, uh, you, you realized after two months, um, it did not work and you could start all 
all over again that this was not something <laughs> that the patients to do. So we work with models that uh, that go for 48 hours and then we know whether whether it's positive or not. Um, but I also thought about like, okay, which type of technologies, I mean, is, is technology development something you're interested in? Is it more uh, the application of technology? I mean, it's it's good to reflect, right? And and um, yeah, if, for instance, uh, if if you really like to do microscopy, then you can think how can you um, perhaps apply that to to a research question that you also find of interest. And I think it's also good to. I mean, it's not something that will come within a few hours of of thinking that you say, okay, this is the my research line or the niche I I want to to go to. But uh, to start early thinking about, okay, what what is it that um, that you find exciting, and then to let that also mature a bit over time. That uh, at one and, and I mean to to discuss it with other people, to get opinions um, from people in the field. I think um, that could be of interest. Uh, also to to judge a bit what how is the competition. I mean, if you start, then of course you have a small lab. You will not be able to compete with with labs with twenty five people um, doing the same. So it's a bit important to think about, yeah, where you could position yourself that even with, with a small number of, of people, um, that you could, uh, get your, your first papers in a, in a reasonable time. And I think it also depends then to think of what kind of institute do you want to go? I mean, for me, it was quite important to have an institute that has a, a hospital nearby because I'm working with patient material. So I just need the clinicians uh, close by that I can have access to this material. Um, and, and some isolated uh, research institute wouldn't have worked for me. Um, but also, uh, depending on the topic, I mean, do you want, uh, when you're working on a immunological topic, do you want to go to an institute that is very broad or do you really want to go to something that is more specialized on, on immunology? And then if you have a number of institutes that you're interested in, I mean, then to see how could you fit in, um, in this institute. So if you're working on T-cell immunology and they have already five groups working on T-cell immunology, it's perhaps not that interesting for them to have another person, right? So it's a bit, um, yeah, getting a, an eye for the field. So where, where are opportunities? Where are gaps that, uh, that you could fit in? With your with the research you want to do, and I think it's really a lot of talking to people, especially people that just recently um, did the step. So how did they do it? Um, what were their experiences with uh, with this interviews? I mean, that's also something. Um, this this interviews for PI positions, you never really see that before. You have to do it. How that works, right? And, uh, and then you're invited and you have to give a jog talk and you have no clue what that actually is. <laughs> I mean, you hear that kind of for the first time then, and then you need to figure out how to do it. And that's then usually a bit too late. So it's good to, to start early to talk to people and that, that you know what, yeah, what you, what you have to expect. Those were really the words of a, the words of a strategist. Uh, really great advice. And so it's, I guess, in a nutshell, Rome is not about building a day, and being strategic about your choices is probably the most important as as you progress and making and really deciding on your niche and seeing how your niche will fit in whatever you want to go. That's that's really nice. Thanks thanks for for such a candid such a candid uh, response, and and I have to say, you as, as a scientist, as a, you you're doing really well. Uh, so you don't need to be anything else. Uh, but 
I guess we would like to ask you a little bit to very for audience to know a different side of you. If you were not a scientist or a doctor, which you also are, what what would you be? Yes, yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think my my yeah other big passion is is music and art. I think so. I actually studied um, uh, also opera singing and and classical. So I had classical singing lessons for I think more than twenty years, and I studied uh, opera and acting uh, next to my medical studies uh, for a couple of years. And it's always something that I that I really like to do. So I think um, probably uh, I would end up somewhere. In, in yeah doing music or or art i mean it's kind of i also try uh to integrate that in my my science um uh, uh routine right i mean i think um being on stage uh for for acting is is not that different from giving presentations so there is a lot that you can implement there there's a bit different setting and uh, i think also um yeah with, with like uh uh, science illustration or so allows us to allows you to to be very creative. So I think that's something I I also like to do a lot. So I'm still happy to be. But uh, probably if if I wouldn't be in science, then somewhere in in music or so. So this leads to a natural follow up question, which is: Have you ever sung anything at a lab meeting or at a presentation to like amplify its uh you know impact? <laughs> yeah, perhaps perhaps I should do that. Yeah. <laughs> There are, there are a lot of um, of scientists I think that that are also doing music and that there are there are some great musicians also that uh, that are scientists and yeah perhaps we should try to write a song and uh, implement that more. <laughs> you should pair up with the musicians of the department, you know, um, and you know make a post-COVID celebration. We, we could ask you to give us a, a small show now, but we won't. We won't. Uh, <laughs> That's good. No, actually, I was, uh, I was. So we had some discussions just before COVID started about uh, uh, doing some some music together. I mean, I also had, I have to say, at uh, hospitals where I was working uh, before, we had uh, always a group of doctors, and we met uh, on on Friday during lunch in the room of the music therapists, uh, who was not in on Friday. And then we just made some music together and it was always a lot of, of fun. And I, I also was discussing, uh, well, whether we could do something at NKI, but uh, then of course Corona came and, uh, yeah, since yeah. then we, we haven't uh, continued, but perhaps at one point in time, we can think about that again. Yeah, the GI community has a, a band called GI Distress made up of faculty who play together more in person than they do practice. Then they, they cover 80s and 90s. And then I think the the lead guitarist of Queen has a PhD in physics. He does. Which is yeah. 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 And I mean, of course, in the in the cancer immunotherapy uh field, we have the immune checkpoints. Exactly. Right. So oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah, they always oh. play at the city meetings. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Great conversation. Bye-bye. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, which also include an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. Be sure to reach out to us on Twitter at, at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com, especially if you're a GOAT immunologist, or have feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.